Chapter 9 of Harry D. Or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Charlotte Rose. Harry D. Or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 9 In Which I Have a Bad Night and produce a sensation in the dormitory. According to orders, we all arose at half-past seven the next morning, thoroughly refreshed. After a substantial breakfast, we heard the late mass and came from the chapel in time to get our books for class. At noontime, Tom and I had a long tete-a-tete. I told him the dramatic incidents of my life, to which he listened with no little astonishment. When I had concluded my tale, he fell into a brown study. I'll tell you what I think, he at length said. I think there's not an end of this business yet, by any means. You loved your nurse pretty much the same as though she were your mother. Now that's in her favor. From what I've seen and heard during my three years in boarding college, I've come to believe that a small boy seldom misses it in the matter of likes and dislikes. Now, if your nurse killed your uncle, I'm willing to bet my head that she didn't do it merely for the sake of the money. You think not? I exclaimed with a great feeling of relief. The reader should remember that what had given me the greatest shock was the thought that one I had loved so much should prove so base. Honest, answered Tom. Now, another thing. Did your nurse ever act queerly? That is, did you ever notice anything in her conduct which might lead you to think that there was something wrong about her head? Before replying, I considered for a moment. No, I at length made answer. She was reserved and distant with others, but with me she was ever kind and loving. I can't say that she at any time acted queerly. She might have killed him in a moment of insanity, observed Tom. At all events, I'm quite sure that she didn't kill him in cold blood. I was inexpressibly suited by this opinion of Tom's. Another thing... He continued. What about that house? Do you honestly think it's haunted? I can't say for certain, Tom. No one goes near it, but everybody says it is. Well, we mustn't take a thing like that for granted. Now, I've got an idea which it won't do any harm to carry out. Who knows, but it may throw some light on the subject... It's the same way in life, I reckon, as in books. We make lots of bad blunders simply because we take one little thing or another for granted. Now, I really don't see what that house being haunted or not haunted has to do with the case. But maybe it has. At any rate, it will do no harm to find out. Now, here's my plan. Next vacation, you and I will spend a night in your uncle's house. You needn't look so scared. Of course, you're horribly afraid now. 
That's because you're sickly. But you'll be all right by next summer, and you'll enjoy the prospect of that night in a haunted house just as much as I do now. I won't make the promise, Tom. That's right, answered my romantic friend. But next spring I'll ask you the same question, and I'm perfectly sure that you'll say yes. I doubt it. No matter. And, Harry, if you don't mind, I'll tell Percy all about the matter. You can trust Percy a thousand miles further than you can see him. Certainly, Tom. Tell Percy. From after knowledge, I am now certain that Tom did not believe my uncle's house to be haunted. But my new friend liked anything that gave promise of adventure, and the prospect of passing a night in a lone house was something after his heart. During the day, my imagination, despite my endeavors to the contrary, kept running on the unlovely memories of the night I spent at my uncle's. Horrible pictures flashed before me, over and over again, without order and without sequence. It was as though I myself were haunted. The swimming incident had unstrung my nerves, and my long talk with Tom had freshened into vividness the details of a night vivid enough as they ever were without my recalling them. With evening, these haunting memories grew stronger. To use a bold word, they became aggressive. And when I retired to rest, I was in an extreme state of nervousness. There they came, as I tossed restlessly upon my bed. The gloomy house, my gloomy uncle, the scowling caget, my angry nurse. At once the picture changed, and I was standing, terror-stricken, gazing into my uncle's room and contemplating that sad sight. This picture stared at me for a few moments, then vanished. It did not fade away, and at once another picture was gazing at me. I say gazing at me, for I know no other form of words to give the reader an adequate idea of the manner in which these pictures came and went. This picture was of a little boy leaping from a bed, a scream of terror under upon his lips. He looks about him wildly, at the blood upon his nightshirt, at the blood upon the floor, at that pathetic glove bathed in purple. And as I gaze at this picture and it at me, it becomes more and more vivid, clearer, distincter. No vision, but a reality. And reaching the last degree of vividness, I become part of the picture. I become the little boy. I, too, leap from my bed just as on that awful morning, and again scream in an ecstasy of terror. Help! Murder! And with these words the spell is broken. And trembling in every limb, with a great sob bursting from my bosom, I find myself standing in a dormitory surrounded by boys with faces white as a sheet and gazing upon me in awe and horror. And before I can realize where I am, a soft hand is caressing my cheek, a soft voice is whispering soothing words into my ear. As a mother soothes her frightened babe,
It is Percy, the only one of all the boys who has not been disconcerted by my scream. He is perfect master of himself, and the only emotion upon his expressive face is intelligent sympathy. Wake Mr. Middleton, chattered one of the boys nearest to me. Strange to say, Mr. Middleton did not awake, even on this occasion. He was the soundest of sleepers. No, you don't, whispered Keenan authoritatively. Just let him have his sleep out. He deserves all he gets. You are always considerate, George, whispered Percy. We can arrange this matter ourselves. I'll take Harry over to the infirmary and stay beside him for the rest of the night. No, you don't, Percy, said Tom. You've had your innings already. I'll take him. Hereupon there arose a whispered discussion. Donal and Keenan and Quip put in claims too. At length it was decided that Percy should have the office, whereupon Keenan turned round and said, Now, boys, hop into bed. I'm acting prefect. The boys, who had recovered from their fright, gave a little series of giggles and obeyed. I shall say little of that night in the infirmary. It is a fragrant memory. Percy was not an angel, for angels are not made of clay. But as he bent over me that night with his tender smile and his gracious words, as from out his blue eyes there shone that unselfish love which is not of the earth earthy, I thanked God from my heart for this object lesson in the sublime nobility of human nature. End of chapter 9